you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Welcome to the next edition of Bare Naked Money. Colin and Josh here with you and doing it in a little bit of an odd format. We're actually in the same spot, which is really kind of odd. So we'll see if the proximity improves the quality of the podcast. We'll be looking for feedback. So Josh, I've lost track. What is it you wanted to talk about this week? Well, there's so many topics out there. I think we're just going to jump all over the place today. Awesome. I love jumping all over the place. I can't wait. But you're in charge. You're leading. So where do, where do you want to take us? Well, I think the topic du jour is recession. I've heard that recently. Yes. People have been talking about recessions. Yeah. You haven't seen much about it though, I'm sure. No, no. It's really hard to find information on recessions. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So it's, and again, this is not the first recession we've gone through. I think the economists have successfully predicted 14 of the last four recessions. So we talk about them a lot more than they happen. And you would think that we know what they were. Yeah. Well, you're kind of implying there that we are going through a recession. I'm, I'm accepting the premise of the question. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're not there yet necessarily. I think as we like to do, we like to take a step back here and maybe provide a little bit of context and a little bit of nuance. Right now, there's a whole bunch of things that say, yeah, recession's pretty likely, but also a whole bunch of things that say, we're probably not going into a recession. So where do you fall on it? Well, it's, it's hard to say. I, I, I'm, I'm really unsure to be honest with you, but I don't think that it has the, the magnitude of effect that people are talking about because I think from our, most people, when they're talking about recessions are saying, Hey, what's the stock market going to do? Yeah. And I think it's pretty conclusive right now. The market has built in a fairly high expectation of recession, yeah. whether or not it's happened. So at this point, it's not whether we go into recession or not, it's to what extent has the market priced in what's about to happen. I think that's the more valuable yeah. conversation to have with regards to what's happening next. It's not, we're going into a recession, therefore the market's going to get worse. It's like, well, no, is this a recession worse than what the market was anticipating? And those are impossible to calculate, although you can talk about them for hours. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that the odds of a recession, I, I think what we can probably agree on and probably agree with everybody out there that the odds of a recession have increased quite a bit since the start of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So let's say that, well, yeah, we can agree on that. So n the next thing is, okay, well, how high are those odds? What's the market baking in? Like you said, and then if you do have a recession, kind of how severe is it going to be? Yep. And this, I think this is what people are now tr starting to, to try to calculate is how bad is it going to be? And if it's mild, have we factored in everything with the stock market? If it's severe, have we factored in some or all of it? Yeah, and I, and I also think it's important to remind everybody at this moment what a recession is. A recession is simply two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, which is an odd statement. I know, but that's how they frame it. Now, Josh, you found that there's a secret group of people that actually get to declare recessions that we hadn't yeah, heard before. I'm pretty sure these guys are underground somewhere <laughs> in a bunker and looking at the economic data and they're determining, hey, yeah, this is a recession and this is not. So I was kind of blown away by this because I've always heard it defined exactly what you said there. Uh, as, as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, but apparently, and I think this is a U.S. thing, but there's a, a committee, I forget what the, the group is called. I'll have to look it up here, but a committee that determines whether or not it's a recession by looking at a number of different data points, not just GDP. Yeah. So it is technically possible in the U.S. at least to 
based on this definition of a recession, have two negative quarters of GDP growth without it technically being a recession. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I've been reading about and listening to right now is jobs are still extremely strong and there doesn't seem to be too much of an indication that that's going to go the negative way. So can you have a recession if you don't have any significant uptick in unemployment? Well, then you spin the wheel and you've got the central bank policy, which is inflation fighting. And, you know, we've had oil drop from 120 bucks a barrel, but back below hundred bucks a barrel price of gasoline is actually dropping during the peak driving times in North America, which is odd, you know, so there's a lot of things in motion, but you know, this actually reminds me of you buying a house, Josh, remember the podcast that we did about you buying a house? Yeah. It was like three weeks ago. I remember it, <laughs> but no, because you, you, you were transacting in April. Yeah. And your experience seemed to be not in line with the numbers that were coming out for March. Right. And, you know, it was, yeah, all the numbers for March were off the charts. Everything's crazy. It's going to stay crazy. Your experience wasn't quite that. And at yeah. the time it was like, gee, maybe today it's already over and we're on the other side, you know, because again, the, declaring a recession is a backward looking thing. You, know, you can't say you're in a recession. You can say a recession happened. You can't say you're in one and, you know. If we start behaving as if, you know, things are that way when they're on the fact on the other side of it, now that's where you can go sideways. Right? Yeah. So these are all trailing indicators we look at. Yeah. I think the big one there that's a trailing indicator very clearly is inflation. Mm -hmm. And we've seen some of the numbers for June stay relatively strong, but could we be past that? And we're talking about oil prices now down about 25% from their peaks, a lot of other Commodity prices are way down from their peaks as well. Mm -hmm. Natural gas is one that's sailed pretty high. And then some of the agricultural commodities are still pretty high, but just about everything else has kind of come down pretty aggressively from their peaks. And I've seen this in raw data and anecdotally when talking to uh, customers, clients that uh, work in, in sort of logistics related industries that, yeah, your shipping costs are coming down a little bit. Some of the raw material costs are coming down. So Maybe we're seeing some early indications that we're past that sort of worse inflationary part of things and kind of overlap. And does that maybe now mean that the whole probability of a recession needs to be rethought too? I don't know. Well, and I think the important lesson to take from this for those who are saying, well, obviously we're in a recession. Obviously things are going to get worse. No, there's nothing obvious here. There's no, yeah. you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of reading or a whole lot of in-depth, you know research, if you air quotes research, to see that there's a lot of forces at play and to say that the next step or what's going on now is any kind of obvious, I won't call simplistic, but it's, it certainly doesn't capture you know, what's going on out there right now, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Now we're talking about inflation. One of the other sort of leading, one of the things that inflation leads into is interest rates. And we're not going to sit here and talk about interest rates and why they're where they are, where they're going from here. That's not what the purpose of this is. But I think what we were talking about the other day is practical implications now that the interest rates are higher. And this has implications for both borrowers and lenders or savers. Yeah. So interest rates where they are today, let's start with the borrowing side first, because I think this is kind of a big issue for us here in Canada with the, the level of debt that we have. What are, you, what are you looking at when you see interest rates up and you're a borrower, you have a mortgage or line of credit or something like that? What do you do? Well, it's just changed, it's changed the equation a little bit. 
Sorry. It's changed the equation a little bit because, you know, it, it's always, you're making choices with regards to, you know, what you do with the discretionary dollar. Are you paying down debt or are you investing it? And it's, you know, you're always looking at the math. Now, interest rates have gone up. Now, they're not high by any stretch. You know, we've gotten back to what we would consider maybe more normal interest rates. Yeah. It's not apocalyptic. Unless you were right at the end of the envelope of what you could afford, that you may have some tougher choices. It might be the apocalypse for it's, you. <laughs> as the definition of a recession is, is my neighbor loses his job. A definition of a depression is I lose my job. So it <laughs> right. really depends how close it gets, right? <laughs> That's right. But no, it, it's changed the math in that equation a little bit, but honestly, not a lot. And people are concerned about mortgage payments going up. All they're doing is changing the interest rate and then you've got a higher mortgage payment. Well, you can play with your amortization to get the payment back. Yes, you end up paying more interest over time on that yeah. dollar for sure, but it doesn't mean that your mortgage payment has to move as much as some of the more simplistic examples out there are showing. Uh, so there are ways to deal with it. And you know, panicking and trying to lock your mortgage in now and paying a penalty to do so and things of that nature. Whenever you start something with the word panic, what comes next might not be the smartest thing. Right. So it's just a matter of, you know, balance of probabilities and how big of a deal is it to your financial situation? I mean, if you're sitting on a, you know, you bought a house four years ago and you took out an, an 80% mortgage against it. Okay. That's, that's a little bit more difficult to deal with rather than you got a $200,000 mortgage against a million dollar property, you know, that, you know, you probably have some more, more, more slack in the system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess one of the lessons as always is give yourself a little bit of slack, a little bit of flexibility. You don't want to put yourself right up against it because then the slightest move one way or the other against you is now it's, it's doomsday for you. Well, I mean, this is, this is where certainty weighs into it, right? People are certain of a lot of different things. It's like, well, real estate's always going to go up and real estate's never going to go down. You know, interest rates are never going to change that much. You know, but any of those certainties introduces a whole new level of risk that, you know, you really got to be careful of because, you know, things are going to change and you have to have the ability within your plants to absorb shocks like this for sure. Yeah. So you're borrowing today, Colin, variable on the table, fixed on the table with your mortgage. What do you do? Well, it's, again, it depends on your situation as to whether or not you can accept some movement in that payment. I've, I've always personally been a variable guy because, you know, it providing variables cheaper, you know, because you yeah. can, you know, if you save you know, a percent for a year or two before the rates go up, then yeah, the rates got to go up twice as much in order for you to be behind over that time period. Mm -hmm. But it really depends on, you know, how much you're going to think about it. Yeah. Your appetite for risk, and yeah. your comfort level with that, for sure. If you're going to think about it every day, you need a fixed mortgage. <laughs> if you can get the capacity not to think about it and have it not to matter, then maybe variable, you know, can work in your favor. But again, it's, it, 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 the future really is unknown. The banks and central banks now are really going to want to take credit for killing the inflation monster. So if they get there, yep. they seem to be getting lots of pats on the back for, for being super aggressive. So that, that does give you a little bit of caution. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think if we sat here three months ago and said, well, you know, balance probabilities are probably not going to hike that much variable now kind of looks attractive and we would have been wrong on that. So it's just, it's, it's accepting some uncertainty, I guess. Uh, and also how much flexibility you have in your plan. If your fixed rate mortgage is going to bring you right up against your threshold, probably stick with a fixed because if you're variable and you're getting close to that threshold and it sh shoots right through, now you're toast. So I think the honest answer is there's a certain amount of uncertainty in life you have to learn to live with. 
I can't make it comfortable. Like there's no way for us to make this completely comfortable for you. This is just part of being, this part of adulting as I, you know, yeah. steal the phrase to use when I'm talking to my kids. And just to be the other side of the argument, I've always kind of been a fixed guy just because I do value the certainty that that brings. So there you go. So I guess what the, our listeners can take from that, you could do either one. Whoever you think smarter, follow <laughs> our advice. <laughs> and, and please leave a comment. Well, the other side of uh, Josh, and I'll turn it on to you, is is the uh, the investing side. Yeah. Because yep. for a long time, for the last you know, I don't know, ten plus years, we've kind of dismissed uh, fixed investing because the interest rates were just so absolutely trash. They're a little less trashy now. Yeah, a little less trashy, and people are starting to get kind of excited about your three or four percent GICs that you see out there now. Sometimes. Now I'm going to take a step back because I've been cautioning people. Yeah. 4%. That seems really good relative to what we're used to over the last 10 years, but keep in mind, inflation's probably going to be higher than 4% over the next 12 months on average. So you're still not gaining anything. Yeah. You're not losing quite as much, but you're also not gaining anything relative to inflation in real terms. Well, yeah, but I think that, you know, for the first time in a long time, this is a real conversation Yeah, because when the one-year GICs were less than 1%, it's like, oh, why, why are we talking? Why would you lock it? Why, you know, just to t again, take a step back, GIC is locking your money up. So yeah. why are you going to do that for basically no return? Yeah, exactly. You know, for, for me, I, I advise anybody, if you're going to give up access to your money, which a GIC, you give up access, you should be paid for that. Yeah. And it's just a matter of deciding of what, what you can be paid for it. Yeah. Is it worth losing access to the money? I mean, for me, GIC still work really, really well. Like if it's like, Hey, we've got tuition that we're going to pay in 12 months time or buy yeah. a car in 12 months time, or there's this very set goal. Yeah. Yeah. And right now sticking in a GIC instead of getting one or 2% off a daily interest rate, getting 4% off a GIC. Yeah. You know what? Makes sense. There's, there's, there's some efficacy to that. Like that's, that, that's not a terrible thing, but it's interesting. It's now in the conversation because it's yeah. been a lot of years. Like we're talking about laddering GICs and laddering bonds. I mean, there's a whole bunch more on the table to look at that might make sense that we were dismissing yeah. last year. Well, the other question that I'm getting from a lot of people right now that have that money, that know that they have that, that 12 month timeframe coming up where they're going to need the money is do I lock in now or do I wait till the next bank of Canada meeting? Because they're definitely going to hike rates. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it's true, right? So we know that they're probably going to hike rates most likely, like we'll, we'll probably assign whatever, 90% probability that they'll be hiking rates at the next meeting. And uh, I think it's September. But those one-year GICs and every, basically every 10-year of GIC beyond that one year, they already factor in what the expectations are for interest rate increases over that period of time. So if your one-year GIC is at 4%, that doesn't mean that the Bank of Canada hikes interest rates 1%, that that's going to go to 5 That's already factoring in some portion of that interest rate increase. And I'll give people a, a tangible example. So this last week, the Bank of Canada hiked interest rates by 100 basis points, so 1%. And that was actually a surprise. People were expecting something more like 75 basis points, so 0.75%. GIC rates for one year moved after that, or the two days following that, about 0.05%. So there is some relation to what Bank of Canada does and how GIC rates move but it's mostly a, a function of expectations. Does the Bank of Canada move more aggressively or less aggressively than the expectations that, that are currently baked into the markets, Jess? Well, and this is why we always talk about make decisions on what you know. You know don't make decisions on what you expect is going to happen, right? Because as soon as I mean, 
bank account is definitely going to raise interest rates. Well, easy there, big shooter, take 50% off. You know, this shit can happen between now and then, you know, likely, absolutely. But then even if it does happen, how much of an effect might it have? That's not, yeah. so there's, there's too many, too much uncertainty with that. Make your decision on what, you know, if it makes sense today, do it. Yeah. Like don't, don't hope it's going to get better sure. two months from now. Right. Cause there's, there's a lot can go on in two months. Yeah. So I guess bottom line, when, when you're a saver, it makes more sense to start looking at some of these vehicles for what you need as the guaranteed portion of your portfolio. If it's not a guaranteed portion of your portfolio that you need something that's extremely risk averse, I still go on the side of, yeah, I'd much rather have a, a portfolio of stocks and bonds for the next five years than I would a bunch of GICs. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then, and that's, you know, we're, I guess we didn't build the bridge or didn't go over from, you know, the using a GICs as part of a portfolio. I mean, that we, we, we probably still don't, it's closer to being a conversation, yeah. but it's not one that I think we're going to be positive on saying, yeah, we're going to start doing that because again, it's, it's the absolute rate of return that you're aiming for. And after the sell-off that we've had, you know, the expected rates of return in the, in the fixed income market and different vehicles and with stocks is, is more favorable you know, at, at this point. But I just, uh, I just want to let everybody out there know it is now a conversation. We don't dismiss it in, in five seconds anymore. We, we, it takes many more words to dismiss it. Yeah. So let's take this one step further and talk about banks because banks, interest rates higher, they're charging you more on your mortgage. Must be great for banks, right, Cole? Oh, absolutely. You know, cause with great certainty, banks always do well. Well, Canadian banks. Yeah. All the other banks in the world, they all suck. Yeah. Canadian banks here, we do things better than everybody. I'm glad you've led into this so, so gently. So, you know, th yeah, this is one of those things that it's a widely and deeply held belief in Canada that Canadian banks can do no wrong. They're always good. And, you know, and largely, yeah, yeah, they're well-run companies. They, they, they have protection. It's an oligopoly that they, they are more profitable here, which is why you don't see Canadian banks successfully going outside of Canada too much. So yes, they're well-run businesses. They can be very profitable, but that doesn't make them foolproof. We've often, well, I've often made the comment that they're kind of priced for, for perfection. And the least little bump can, can knock them off. So it was interesting last week that it was a U.S. announcement that actually hit the Canadian bank. <laughs> Makes no sense. <laughs> None whatsoever, but it, it goes back to how fragile that pricing is on the Canadian banks. And as we sit here today on July the 17th, the Canadian banks are actually down more in aggregate than the Canadian market, which yeah. is, doesn't happen all that often. Uh, you know, it's not as if gold has been going gangbusters and the, the, the precious metals is, is really driving the Canadian market up. So, you know, we saw, you know, many of the major Canadian banks drop five or 6% on the day that the news came out of the U S. So again, it doesn't make them bad businesses. It doesn't make them a bad investment. It just points out that they're human and, you know, making sure that they, they have a reasonable percentage in your portfolio rather than, you know, 20 or 30%, uh, because again, you're caught. If you're confident that, oh, this will obviously pass and it's obviously going to come back, well, have that same confidence about the overall market. Yeah. The overall market is more likely to behave that way. Um, but, you know, we're just going through a period of now. And again, it was, it was interesting. I can't even remember exactly what the, I just heard there was bad news in the U.S. banking. Yeah, well, sector. a couple of the U.S. banks reported their earnings, uh, J.P. Morgan, and I can't remember the other one off the top of my head. But yeah, it was kind of bizarre because the Canadian bank sold off, like you said, about 5% on that news. And the U.S. banks were down about 1% on that day. And then the U.S. banks rebounded significantly the day after, and the Canadian banks were kind of flat. So I don't know how you can make heads or tails of that, but I guess the, to your point, 
there's a certain amount of expectations of success baked into the prices of Canadian banks. And maybe that's where the risk comes in. Yep. That price to perfection basically means that, hey, people expect these companies always to make money, always to be solid, never to have a hiccup or a misstep. And if they do, then you're going to see that reflected in the stock prices. So our view has been for a while now that you don't want to have, as you said, too much of your portfolio concentrated in Canadian banks. It's one tiny piece of a tiny market in Paul. It's a big piece of a tiny market. Let's say Canadian banks are a big piece of the Canadian market, but the Canadian market is tiny when it, when uh, you look at the rest of the world. So having too much of your eggs in that basket doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, yeah, this is just uh, trying to get through to some people who have that, you know, outsized belief and confidence that, you know, again, they're not going to zero, they're not going into business, but they, they are going to be volatile like the rest of the market. Yeah. The crypto crash continues. You, you say that with a, an air of question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't look, I didn't look in the last five minutes. It tends to be pretty volatile. <laughs> last I looked was a couple hours ago, so it still continued. <laughs> well, we've been almost every day that you and I have been together now for the last couple of weeks, we've said to each other, Hey, this company just went bankrupt <laughs> and they've been crypto companies. So whether it's been a hedge fund or an exchange of some sort or a custodian of these crypto assets, if you even call them a custodian. Yeah, just the, there's been what I would call a bit of a crash in the space. And I think people are waking up to realize that maybe there's a little bit more risk than a lot of people factored in right now. Well, it's difficult to find, uh, you know, Matt Damon on, on, on the TV talking about how great it is. Um, you know, there's certainly some, some shine has come off of it. I mean, just to put it in context. So you're looking at in the U.S. dollar terms, the, the down about 56% year to date. And that's what, hmm? what, what's down 56% Sorry, specifically? Bitcoin. Okay. Bitcoin yep. specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Bitcoin's down 56. Yeah. 50, yeah. 56% year to date compared to the overall market, which, you know, again, depending on where you're looking is in the 20% range and the stock market. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it didn't protect you. It, yeah. it wasn't a great, it didn't replace gold. Um, you know, it did better. It's gold did better than this. Much better. Yeah. Gold's down even. So, yeah. um, I'm not sure where the next step is, Josh. I'm not sure where the next hype is going to come yeah. from. Does it bounce from this? Well, look, I, I want to look at lessons from this and as we always try to do glean some lessons from, from history or experience. And again, one of those things that we come back to all the time is if the rate of return looks too good to be true, it probably is. Like some of these things seem to be guaranteeing rates of returns in, in the high single digit percentages, like 6%, 7%, 8%, 9% rates of return from lending your asset, your crypto assets out. And I, I don't pretend to understand every little thing that goes along with, with this, this, uh, this exercise, this investment. But I can tell you that it's not risk-free if you're getting an 8% rate of return. If you can buy a government of the U.S. or government of Canada bond for three months at half a percent, and these things are guaranteeing you 8% per year. That's not a guarantee. I can guarantee you, that's <laughs> I can guarantee you that, that something there is, is there, there's a risk involved that people aren't fully appreciating. Well, and, and to our audience, if Josh doesn't understand it, you don't either, you know, so it's ununderstandable. Let me, let me, let me take another run at telling a different telling the story a different way. If this truly was an 8% guaranteed or an 8% likely rate of return, Canada Pension would walk in and take a big old swath of that. Sure. But they're sophisticated, smart people 
they didn't think this was a good deal, you know, and there are major institutional players that are looking for guaranteed returns of 8%. Sure. And if you find it, they're going to buy it. It doesn't make it to the retail space. And that's the other thing to recognize. By this time, something has been heavily promoted or being heavily promoted to the retail public. That means that the, the big shops and by big shops, either sovereign wealth funds or big pension plans or Canada, Canada pension, people like that, they buy stuff just outright long before it hits the public. So if it gets down to being available in the retail space, 8% is going to come with a healthy dollop of risk or uncertainty for sure. It's inescapable. And like I said, if Josh doesn't understand it, give up. You have no hope. I won't take that much credit, but I, I guess what you're, you're trying to say, Colin, is the reason 8% guarantee rates of return don't exist is because as soon as something like that pops up, it's an excuse me, immediately competed away. Yep. Everybody piles into that investment and that the rate of return on that investment would immediately come down. So there's a concept in economics called arbitrage is that you can't get sort of a risk-free rate of return uh, greater than the market by going into a different investment because people will be all, all over that. There's millions of investors, literally millions of investors out there in the world. And if there's an advantage like that, they're smart enough that they're going to be on top of it in no time. Yeah, I often find when I see those numbers, it's, there's not a whole lot underneath it. It's, it's like, you know, Hey, it's got an 8% yield. It's great. Yeah. When we build this wind farm, it's like, well, okay, you haven't built it yet, you know, but you, you led with an 8% return, you know, but it's, it's built on a house of sand, you know, there, there's actually nothing behind it. And I think that that's largely what's gone on in the, in the, the Bitcoin and broader, you know, the cryptocurrency space. So. Yeah. I'm going to put my usual disclaimer on this. I still think that there's something here. But it's not still not investable today. Things down, whatever, 50, 80%. You still shouldn't be jumping in because I think there's ways too many question marks still. Well, exactly. And you know, you, it, 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 it's, it's based on faith. Like it's not like it's, it's creating value. It's just kind of sitting there waiting to get noticed. I think that for me, the technology, there's something in that technology yeah. that's going to get into, cause that does seem to be kind of unique. It we will probably find or have found applications for it. But so far we're right. So we're going to keep talking about how right we are. And Josh, the next one was something that I was hoping that you were right on, but apparently you're not, you're not right enough. <laughs> you, you keep trying to say that I'm right. And I keep having to tell you, no, still wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know where Tesla's sitting today, but, uh, yeah, like I, I told you the other day, I've, I've been kind of bearish on Tesla for, it's probably been five plus years now. And as much as I can claim victory over the last six months, over the last five years, I'm, uh, I'm definitely taking a loss there. That's for sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's down 40% year to date. So at the, yeah. So if I bought it five years ago when I was t bashing it, then I'd only be up like 3000% right now. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm still on team Josh. I think. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate the moral support, but <laughs> I got to chalk this one up in the L column and move on. Fair enough. And I, there, there's an important lesson too. Every once in a while, you know, things just don't work out. And yeah, you know, that's, you'll go right back to our interest rate conversation. Sometimes you can do absolutely everything right and still not get the best outcome. Right. So it's, there is a certain amount of, of, of uncomfortable, uh, vol volatility in the world. Things are not guaranteed. You can't make them guaranteed. You're just going to have to accept there's a range of outcomes. Yeah. Anything else before we let our listeners go? No, I think we've covered off as much as, uh, as much as they want to listen to us for now, but Hey, give us some, give us some suggestions. We, we really would like to have some feedback and we do get feedback and try to react to it. So let us know if there's something you'd like to hear about. We're, we're here to serve.
Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back to talk more interest rates or recession, more funds, more Tesla, more crypto. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth, Inc. IA Private Wealth, Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth, Inc. operates. We've noticed something. It seems there are a lot of people who would rather try to figure out their lives with an online calculator than air your finances to a human. Stop doing that. You need to talk to someone who can help direct you, tell you where to start with what you've got to make the biggest impact on your future. You can't figure that out at doihaveenoughcash.com, but you can figure it out by chatting with us. Call us. It'll be okay. You'll see. Content of this presentation, including facts, views, opinions, recommendations, descriptions of, or references to products or securities, is not to be used or construed as investment advice, as an offer to sell, or the solicitation of an offer to buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Although we endeavor to ensure its accuracy and completeness, we assume no responsibility for any reliance upon it. This should not be construed to be legal or tax advice, as every client situation is different. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.